on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Coming up next, America Can We Talk with your host, Debbie Georgianos. And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgianos. Today in our show, we're going to talk about why there are U.S. supporters of Hamas brutality. We have a guest joining us. I am so impressed by her book. I can't wait to talk with her. Her name is Stella Morabito, and she's joining us to talk about the weaponization of loneliness. Everyone in America should read this book. You'd understand a lot more about what's happening to our country. Uh, and finally, if we get to it, I'm going to talk about leftists losing elections in Australia, New Zealand, Ecuador, and even here in the U.S. in the state of Louisiana. I'm going to tell you why these stories matter to you. So in the, I want to talk about this, uh, what's going on in America. I know we talked a, lot, a great deal last week about what's happening in Israel and this attack by Hamas. And I want to just touch on a few other things that like, came to my attention since the last time we spoke. And um, I know I've mentioned, if you're a regular listener, you know we have, uh, my husband and I have great ties to Israel. We are um, grateful for our friendships with our Jewish friends in Israel um, and have always been felt so welcomed there uh, in Israel as Christians uh, traveling there and as just as Americans. So we feel a bond with Israel. But I want to tell you a few more things I've learned since I talked just briefly about these protests in America where American students are protesting. They're really protesting against Israel and in favor of Hamas. And it's outrageous, but I, I want to offer you an explanation. So the quick thing I want to tell you was, um, one thing that has occurred since we last spoke about it was that as some of the bodies are being recovered from this horrific, unprovoked attack, um, there are inform information's come to the attention and actually given over to NBC, no friend of Israel, but to NBC, and we started talking about how detailed the planning was in order to get what to in, inflict the damage they inflicted. One particular uh, thing they talked about is, and the documents have been uncovered, is the fact that they were they, they wrote as their goal, as the uh, goal of Hamas had, which is a part of Muslim Brotherhood, is a part of the you know anti uh, anti Jewish, anti American um, movement, the Islamic Jihadist movement. Um, they talk about the goal was quote kill as many people as possible close quote. They detail specifically targeting elementary schools and a youth center in an Israeli kibbutz. Uh, these are according to documents they have uncovered. Uh, they were also detailing maps showing where Hamas intended to kill or take hostage civilians and school children. They talk about the names of schools. They really were going after inflicting maximum human damage and emotional damage in Israel. They are just grotesque acknowledgments of the um, of this the plan for this horrific attack. Now I'm going to tell you I know someone's going to claim well you don't know if those documents are authentic. The documents NBC is now reporting to the public. You're right I don't. I don't know if they're authentic but I will tell you they do spell out what Hamas actually did. So they're, they may, you know, if someone concocted them later, it's almost irrelevant because the fact is they describe what Hamas did. Another thing, just on the subject of the, the depth of the brutality of these attacks, there are now reports out, uh, even by uh, acknowledged in Israel and acknowledged by the people who are trying to sort through the horrific damage, they have come across 297 bodies that are so brutalized, so maimed and brutalized, and I won't even describe for you because children listen to this show, uh, that they're unrecognizable. And what that reflects is the level of just pure 
evil hatred that is in the minds and hearts of these Hamas attackers. You know, if, you're, if your goal is to protest, well, you, you wrongly conclude that the, uh, that the Gaza Strip is an occupied territory, or you wrongly think that the, there's such a thing as a Palestinian nation, or that there's such a thing as Palestinian people, which are factually incorrect. Even if you think those things, and you're there, you, your alleged motive would be to correct that, you would not go out of your way to target children in schools and daycare centers and families. You wouldn't brutalize the bodies beyond any description, beyond the ability to, to uh, even identify the body. So that the brutality is simply um, overwhelming. And I will also say that a lot of stories are circulating regarding whether or not Israel, what the reason is that the um, Mossad, the uh, IDF in Israel, did not have enough warning, didn't have any, apparently any warning. They're saying they didn't know what was happening. I've read lots of speculation. None of it has resonated as true with me, but I do have plenty of sources. I'm going to keep listening, and I will report it to you. Um, I, it, is, it is extremely alarming and suspect that with all the, I'm always bragging on the show about the, not bragging, but I mean touting how great Israeli military forces are, how great the IDF is, how great the Mossad is. The idea they got taken totally by surprise is, is rather shocking. Um, anyway, I will also, I put up at our website today uh, at americacanwetalk.org, I put up a link to an article called 13 Basic Facts to Defend Israel. It's just really important to understand. It's, it's tedious, and besides, I've done it before on this show, to recount again what the actual history is of the land of Israel that is now called Israel, the historic uh, dominance, the historic um, ownership, so to speak, of that land now called Israel by the Jewish people over the millennia. Millennia. This is not an, a Palestinian land that the, the Jews have stolen. All of this um, ignorance uh, leads, leads people to get angry when, 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 um, because they, they don't know what they're talking about. So um, I will tell you that what I want to turn, the last thing I'm going to do before I turn to our guest today is there have been protests all over America protests. In fact, I think there was one in Dallas where we are, uh, where we are now, Dallas, Texas, a pro-Palestinian march. And the reason these pro-Palestinian marches are occurring is because we have had an extremely poor job in this country teaching in our schools, our universities, what the facts are about Israel about the Jewish people, the land of Israel, what the battle is over the, what the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank, or as the Israelis prefer to call the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. But those, the, the tiny, minute area that's called Israel, surrounded by gigantic countries who are Muslim majority, all of whom are one, one point or another trying to attack Israel, We've done a poor job teaching reality to the to our students, and we have done a poor job of in this country. We have this uh, as, as, a, as a viewed as a virtue or touted as a virtue that everything is moral, morally equivalent. The moral equivalence of all ideas of all people of all religions. And so we don't have the capacity sometimes to recognize that there is no moral equivalency here in this case between what has occurred in Israel, what Hamas did, Hamas, an Islamic jihadist terror organization, is nothing more than that, there's nothing noble about them, but they attack Israel. There's there, this notion that somehow there's moral equivalence between the two is absurd. But the last thing I was going to say, which I think I think explains in great part, especially on college campuses, these uh, protests. Um, there has been a, um, there has been, with respect to um, Israel and in general uh, the Palestinian people, there has been an effort by the left in this country, the which includes basically all of mainstream media, uh, many of the government outlets, academia, uh, you know, across the board in, in colleges, campuses. There has been the pushing of this unspoken, not always acknowledged Marxist ideology at, that requires the identification of a victim. It is how leftists in this world always gain power. They create a victim class, a new victim class, victim status for somebody. It's how Democrats in America get power. They identify a victim class, whether in America you want to call it the, whether it is uh, African-Americans, it's women, it is illegal aliens, it's border crossers. Um, it is the left, 
the methodology they use to gain power is to identify a victim class, to urge people to identify themselves as part of that victim class, and then those victims pulled together now resent and feel alienated from the rest of society, and this encourages both uh, ignorance and encourages outrage. And this is what you're seeing in these college students who are so worked up into lathered into hysteria of hatred um, of Israel and rallying in favor of murderous Hamas troops, rallying in favor of the Palestinians, is they don't know their history, they have no idea what they're talking about, and they have been drawn in without recognizing it, drawn into this Marxist effort, this Marxist ideology or mindset that says, find the victim, side with him, hate everybody else. So they think that the Palestinians are the victims could not be further from the truth. There are innocent Palestinians who lost their lives. And that is not, and, and the only entity that you should be angry with about that fact is Hamas and other jihadist organizations in this world. We can talk more about that, but this, you know, we can't really move forward in America until we get a lot of facts straight, including and specifically get facts straight about what's happened with the Gaza Strip, who the people are that occupy the Gaza Strip, and, and become more alert and aware of how the left in this country has worked very, very hard to make you think in victim and oppressor uh, mode at all times. And if anyone is being oppressed here, it's the people of Israel constantly having to defend themselves against the uh, countries that surround them and actually strive to destroy them. That, my very fine friends, is today's first five. Okay, so we have this wonderful guest joining us in just a moment here. Her name is Stella Morabito. Mor excuse me, Morabito. Um, this is her book. I, I have too many papers here. Okay, this is her book. Um, it's called The Weaponization of Loneliness, and the subtitle is brilliant. How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. Stella Morabito is joining us in just a moment. I'll tell you one more thing in giving her introduction because I want to dive in. She has made, honestly, she's made some points that are so brilliant and I think just so eye-opening. So very quickly, um, she's the author of this book I just mentioned. She's also a senior contributor at Federalist. And if you don't go to the Federalist, you ought to. It's just a great great uh, website. Uh, she's also, prior to that, she's with the CIA for a decade focused on communist media propaganda and misinformation. So she's studied, in fact, her book recounts how even when she was a child, she kind of studied watching behavior on the playground, behavior in high school, behavior in college and, you know, with all the fraternity and sorority stuff. So she has, so that was her CIA experience, a decade setting communist media propaganda misinformation. She has a master's degree from USC in Russian and Soviet history, brilliant writer, and I'm so welcome, happy to welcome to the show, Stella Morabito. Thank you very much, Deb. It's great to be here with you. Great to have you here. I am just, um, as I told you before we came on, came live today, I'm just smitten by this book. And I'll tell you one thing that I, um, let's just actually do the launching point of this, then we'll get into the book. I remember when um, there, the uh, federal agency, the VAIC, whatever his name is, Murthy, Murthy, um, put out a, uh, a, a statement about the idea how, or it was a proposal of the idea that the federal government wants to help with the problem of loneliness in America. And I actually did a little riff on my show at that time, just saying they're about the last people I want helping. Plus, you know, it would always be, it will, it will be just a uh, stepping stone toward more government control. But you also wrote about that at the time. I'd love to just have you start with your, uh, if you would, how, what, what your reaction was when uh, the government was talking about trying to, the government saying, get on board, helping fight the, uh, the um, epidemic of loneliness in America. Oh, wow. Well, when the Surgeon General came out with that advisory, uh, I wrote a three-part series for the Federalists on the advisory and how it really reads like a blueprint for the invasion of private life, for the invasion of the private sphere of life by, by the government. Uh, want, they want to build a whole infrastructure to track and monitor our social connections. And I guess this is really what I'm driving at in my book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, is how tyrants um, or, you know, government bureaucrats who are uh, intent on social control and social engineering have always 
tried to isolate people in order to control them. Totalitarians, I mean, you know, it's just a basic uh, fact of life in totalitarian societies, as Hannah Arendt pointed out in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. You have to isolate people in order for that terror, um, you know, in order for them to be ruled by terror. They have to feel that they have no place else to go but the government. And of course, that advisory plays right into it. That advisory called Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Social Isolation that was put out, you know, as a response, supposedly as a response to um, isolation as a public health crisis. And of course, we all know, this has been known for decades, that a sense of social isolation has an adverse effect on both, so, uh, both your mental health and your physical health as well. But that's being used in order to create this infrastructure for the government to go in to uh, track all of our social connections. So going back to what you were saying, Debbie, in that amazing monologue where you were talking about what was going on on these college campuses, you know, why these students are, uh, you know, promoting what we would have called in the past crimes against humanity. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, pr promoting the, you know, it doesn't matter what side inflicted harm on civilians and, you know, in the most inhumane manner, we would have always referred to those as crimes against humanity, no matter, you know, where they were coming from. And so when you see this celebrated on college campuses, there was even one professor, I've forgotten where he was, who said he was exhilarated by, by the attacks. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. However, according to my thesis, it's not a matter of ideology, really. I mean, yes, these students are being taken in by Marxist ideas and wokeness and all the other stuff like transgender stuff, but it all boils down, <laughs> excuse me, to a, um, a fear of being isolated socially if you don't get with that propaganda, if you don't get with those programs. Because if they don't, take part. That's how far we've come with what I call the machinery of loneliness, that these students are fearful of being, this is my, my thesis, of being socially rejected, called a bigot or, a, you know, they, you know, they have a lot of names uh, that, that, you know, slogans and smears. If they don't adhere to the propaganda. So that's really where we are. I believe that it's really a matter of social contagion a lot more. And we need to become aware as Americans of how these social dynamics work within us and on society as a whole. So well said. You know, I was going to say it was toward the beginning of your book. I started um, highlighting and putting my usual yellow stickers and, and stickies and highlighter. Now the whole book's a mess. I'm going to have to buy another one. It doesn't look like this. Because every point, every page is filled with, with just great wisdom. I didn't know until I read your article that uh, Senator... Um, Senator Connecticut, um, had actually introduced legislation. I mean, I, it was bad enough that this Vivek Murphy guy, Murphy guy, uh, launched off about how we're, the government's going to solve your loneliness problem. And you just, you know, you, you hope this is just the, the mental meanderings of someone who has, doesn't have anything better to do. But they're actually moving forward with this. And I, oh, yes. I yeah, yeah. And I love when you, and I want to quickly address, but I, I love when you're pointing out that this vehicle, the government creating, you know, a Department of Anti-Loneliness, I believe you mentioned Japan had done that and another country. Uh, anyway. You, the UK, Ministry of Loneliness. Yeah, Ministry of Loneliness. I mean, it sounds like it could be an Orwell. It sounds like Orwellian, you know? Just, yeah, but, it is. But, you know, to, to play the devil's advocate for a moment, you know, so someone might say, well, there are a lot of lonely people. What harm could come from that? Why do you find that so bad? What's so bad about that? Well, if you read the 81-page advisory, uh, it's basically, as I said before, it reads like a blueprint for the invasion of private life. Uh, it, you know, you've got this infrastructure, uh, and that's what they call it, uh, a social infrastructure they want to build where uh, every social connection, every place people gather, 
uh, your social connections are monitored and tracked so that those maybe with less social connections can be, you know, um, you know, drawn in more. And, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's it's a crazy um, but, you know, very uh, devious, I think, um, program for basically regulating human relationships is what it boils down to. They want to, uh, one of the quote pillars of, of this advisory is to involve the medical sector in tracking and monitoring social connections, big tech uh, in tracking and monitoring our connections. Um, you know, it goes on and on. I mean, every place people gather, whether it's a school or just kind of a volunteer association, a sports league, uh, you know, libraries, transportation hubs, every place. And, and then, of course, they want policy to be a part on every level, whether it's uh, federal or, or state or local, the most local level. All policy has to kind of, uh, you know, be federalized so that DEI, diversity, uh, inclusion, uh, whatever it is, you know, equity, is all part of everybody's policy across the board. So you can see how this is going to infiltrate what I call the mediating institutions of life. That is families, churches, um, you know, any, any institution of faith, any community institution, neighborhoods, the, the whole thing. And this has really been the, the totalitarian's dream from time immemorial to basically regulate human relationships. And going back to what you were saying about what's going on at college campuses, that's what's happening, I believe. These students are fearful that they'll be cast out uh, isolated. They won't say that, of course, but it really isn't so much about ideology. It's these internal dynamics, this fear that's very hardwired in every human being. I mean, we were created for communion with God, for communion with one another. So we have this need to connect with others that's hardwired into us. And at the same time, a very hardwired fear of ostracism. And, uh, you know, that that has always been the case with human beings. We're social animals. And so uh, not, you know, it's been a long time uh, since tyrants have have used and manipulated that fear of isolation to actually draw us even further into isolation when we comply, when we shut up about what we believe or when we pretend we believe something else. Um, you know, we lie about what we believe, which is what I see happening um, in, at these college campuses in order to avoid uh, that sense of ostracism that you might, that threat of ostracism. But all that does when you comply with it is draw you even deeper into isolation that makes you even more socially controllable. And so I just see this whole thing, um, you know, I think we need to get away, not get away from talking about hard facts and, and ideologies and debate, but debate has, has been extinguished on most college campuses. So I think we really need to delve into this issue of social contagion and this issue of what we fear, what it is that we're really afraid of, and it's isolation, and what it is that's being manipulated, and that's that fear of isolation. So I think that's really my, you know, my belief is that's really the key to unraveling all of, you know, this web of evil that we're stuck in. I love that, and I before we end this interview, which we're not doing soon, I want to get into your chapter that has ideas for how to what to do and how to counter it because they are brilliant, and um, I might even just oh, yeah, they're just really really good. But before we do that, one thing I loved about your book near the beginning is you're talking about phenomena we all observe. For all, for example, all of us began talking about cancel culture and realizing, wow, that's a kind of funny thing. You know, we used to be able to disagree, but now we're afraid to be canceled. And but we don't necessarily tie it to a larger ideological agenda or a larger political agenda or totalitarian agenda. We just we observe you had a list of cancel culture, um, deplatforming uh, right here. Um, um, public ridicule, smearing, uh, social isolation. We watch all these things, these cancel culture type things happening, identity politics happening, and people tend to, I think there's an, an innocent American mindset that watches our culture and society and thinks, 
well, that's different than how it used to be. It didn't used to be like this. I wonder what made that change. But we, we assume it's somehow occurring organically and, and due to or factors that we don't quite comprehend. But you've done a brilliant job of pointing out, no, it's purposeful. It's an agenda. It is a mission to engage in these kinds of silencing of, of um, silencing of opposition and also isolating people. If you don't go along with whatever the issue is, if you don't go along with getting the COVID jab or you don't go along with the uh, politically acceptable from the left position on some issue, you might be silenced. And I agree with you back to the college campuses. That's, I mean, to me, it's kind of all part of that same mindset, but it's, yeah, I, you know, everyone's now saying that the Palestinians are the victims or whatever it is. Everyone's now saying that unless we have an open border, we are a mean country and don't care about people. I'm getting at the point you connect these things we're observing and point out they are used, they are tools used historically by tyrants to bring people into submission, to cause them to be unwilling to, to speak up, to say something that's different from what the public is saying, because people do, it, it, there's no truer words, people do fear isolation. No one wants to feel like they're all alone and no one listens to them, no one cares, no one respects them. I, I mean, it's just, it's hardwired into human identity. We, we're social people. We like to have friends. We like to connect and feel loved. And when you can make someone feel you're going to lose love in our culture, in a place in our culture, you've brought them into submission. I, I mean, it's, a, I just, I know I keep saying, it's a brilliant book, or to me it was, um, just just a brilliant pulling together of history of what's happening in current American history um, and then and and how it's used and how we it, it tends to bring people into compliance with whatever its um, uh, orchestrators are so I, one particular thing I want to hit on you talked about um, uh, political correctness and the estrangement of women yeah okay can you just talk about that a little bit like this the idea we're talking about how that ties into political correctness and the estrangement of women Yes, it's really interesting um, how the left has targeted, especially young single women uh, voters. Uh, and, and that's because I believe that they are more vulnerable to this, what I call weaponization of loneliness than many other demographic groups. And, uh, and so political correctness, if you look, for example, at your affluent, you know, upper middle class white woman who was, uh, you know, out there rallying for Black Lives Matter during the 2020 riots, uh, they all had, in my view, that the same kind of fear of being uh, isolated. Um, you know, I don't know quite how else to put it. They had this need to maintain a sense of status in terms of, you know, what they believed and how they behaved. And, and you see that a lot uh, among women. I mean, you saw it, uh, a couple of the examples I point out were the, um, the hearings for the, um, you know, the nomination process or the, the confirmation process rather for, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh in 2018 and then nearly 30 years before Clarence Thomas, it was the same old playbook. They, they pulled out the left, pulled out, uh, you know, at the 11th hour, uh, a woman who, you know, said that she had been, uh, you know, a, I don't know, a, had, had been ridiculed or whatever it was by the, the nominee. Uh, and, and what that did and what that, I believe, was intended to do uh, first of all, of course, the, the hope was that the nominee would not get confirmed, and that didn't happen in either of those cases. The nominee was confirmed. But the idea really, I think, was to pull in this, um, all of the, the, the feelings of, uh, you know, ridicule that the woman might have felt in the past to, you know, make it a kind of a collective uh, gripe fest, you know, they were all over the Supreme Court banging on the doors and really kind of going insane that, you know, they brought out all these women to, uh, you know, to, to kind of have a primal scream uh, about all of the, you know, every kind of slight that she had felt in the past from men and then, and then apply it to the nominees. 
and this is a you know this kind of guilt by association sort of thing is is a typical um, you know way that you say the left or you know any tyrant or totalitarian kind of handles uh, you know handles group behavior you know uh, and the victim oppressor uh, dichotomy that you mentioned earlier plays into this. It's all about identity politics as well as political correctness and mob agitation. These, in my view, are the three main components of what I call the machinery of loneliness. Identity politics, the women as victims or, you know, whoever else is victim, whatever demographic, uh, is supposed to erase your sense of being a unique individual. That's what identity politics does. It pigeonholes us so that we no longer look at one another as individual human beings uh, that are worthy of friendship or anything else. Uh, so that's identity politics and political correctness is meant to induce self-censorship, make people either lie about what they believe or shut up about what they believe in order to uh, comply with the narrative. And then mob agitation is just meant to enforce all of the above. And we see it, we, it's especially effective among women, I think. It's effective in a lot of different groups, but women in particular, I think, are um, most vulnerable to that, to that fear of isolation and having that fear um, manipulated. I mean, you see this, but you know, the, corner, the the old mean girls kind of uh, behaviors as well. So, honestly, I, I feel like we need like a three hour interview because there's so many great things you've covered in this book. Um, again, I want to make the overarching point that really grabbed me is for people who are rooted in uh, uh, my show is all about preserving America. I want to preserve America the unique, extraordinary, the great. I want people to understand its greatness. And as it has been denigrated by uh, institutions, by more uh, left-wing ideology for decades, um, there has been a, uh, you could observe a kind of shutting down of robust debate, a shutting down of conversations about why you believe X and not Y. And it's not just that, it's not that they yet arrest you for not believing what they believe, but it is, uh, it, it is you know, unacceptable to utter certain positions, and we're losing uh, part of that fabric of America. And I, I just, I love that you tied these phenomena that seem to be occurring organically, but they're actually manipulated uh, there. So identity politics, just a destructive of the idea of each of us being unique and having God-given rights. I mean, and, the, that, and, and you actually talk about the resegregation of blacks, which I thought was a brilliant point. Uh, I want to make sure we leave time to talk about your solutions, because what you've identified here is kind of a, a fourth generation warfare weapon against, against the American people. You know, it's a, you don't see it, there's not bombs dropping from the air, but it's just, uh, and there's not, you know, uh, you know, attacks on the land or anything, but it is a destruction of the fabric of America, destruction of the idea of America as founded and each of us as individual rights from God and all, all the things the Declaration recites and we have the right to live in freedom. All those things are under attack by this tactic of using the threat of loneliness, the idea you might be lonely and isolated, no one will like you unless you agree with these things, and seeing it not seeing it as a tactic used to silence you, to bring you into submission to tyranny, make historical examples. It's not like the first time it's happened. I, I mean, it's just a brilliant and eye-opening um, analysis. Uh, and also, you talk about mobs quite a bit in the book. I mean, honestly, that mob mentality I, I, is maybe, again, part of what's happening on college campuses, you know, that everyone knows we're supposed to be, you know, this. And so the mob makes you feel you're not really responsible personally, right? To actually talk about the use of mobs a bit in this whole uh, battle for uh, against loneliness and how mobs are used to, to manipulate people. Yes. Well, mobs in general don't think, right? They're, they're, they're aggregates of lots of people coming together. Uh, the left is always talking about community organizing. And, um, you know, I think that the, the common denominator of that is mob mobilization is, is really what's going on there to uh, try to uh, enforce compliance with political correctness and identity politics. And of course, mobs can take many different forms. Uh, you have street mobs like Antifa, or now all these people marching, uh, you know, uh, for Hamas, I guess. And then you have, um, you know, 
social media mobs that'll swarm on anybody who says the wrong thing on social media. And you have like bureaucratic mobs, you know, uh, human resources departments and bureaucrats who will keep you in line with the DEI uh, requirements and, and all of that. Make sure you use the correct pronouns and, uh, and so on. Um, so mobs come in a lot of different forms, but they're there to enforce political correctness. They're there to enforce identity politics. And uh, that's why, you know, I have this, you know, the three legged stool of what I call the machinery of loneliness. Lots of other components, of course, uh, I call them the, you know, uh, the propaganda and the censorship and the criminalization of comedy and all of these things that create a sense of isolation in people, a sense that our bonds are breaking and we're becoming more atomized. And mobs are central to creating that, that or you know, uh, increasing that feeling and that fear. Uh, and mobs themselves, you know, they're made up of uh, isolated individuals who are looking to bond uh, in the first place. I mean, youth in particular are extreme, like I said, women, but youth are very vulnerable to that fear, uh, especially, you know, at younger and younger ages. But in the college youth, uh, you can see that happening. I mean, you know, it's almost kind of like that juvenile sort of playground fear, you know, oh, I'll have cooties if I, you know, if I say that, uh, you know, I, I like Israel or, I, you know, I have a friend there or whatever. It, it's the same old, it's the same old drill, the same playbook that you see, whether it's on the playground or mean girls in a lunchroom or a toxic boss, like, you know, if you saw the devil wears Prada, you'll keep everybody in line, uh, or, you know, a cult leader like Jim Jones up to a world-class dictator, which of course, all these people sort of, you know, they aspire to be, whether, you know, members of the oligarchy or whatever. So, um, you know, it, it, it plays a really important part, but I just wanna add one other thing, Debbie, and that is, in resisting all of this, two, two things are absolutely paramount, and I talk about it in my last chapter. Number one, free speech is use it or lose it. And the more our speech, our freedom of speech comes under attack, the louder we need to be about it. The, you know, we, we cannot allow uh, free speech to be extinguished because, I mean, that, that that's what allows us to have relationships in the first place. You can't talk to people openly. You can't get to know them, right? And and so that's number one. You've got you've to absolutely demand and preserve freedom of speech. And second of all, you've got to cultivate. We have to keep cultivating our relationships are in the private sphere of life and protect that sphere, that buffer zone really between the, the individual, the atomized individual and the mass state that is trying to control the individual. This private sphere of life, family, um, institutions of faith, community, friendship, all of these things we need to cultivate, hold them fast and reach out and, and, and develop more and more bonds of affection and bonds of trust and loyalty. This is exactly what there is a war on. Uh, there's a war on our bonds of loyalty and trust. You know, it's all about isolating us through that fear of isolation. So you can't comply with it. Very difficult, but you know, because it's so hardwired in us to avoid ostracism, but that's why we need to become aware of these dynamics. I, I a thousand percent agree. I was going to hit that last chapter. I just want to mention one quick thing also. Your chapter 10 is called Attacks on Family, Faith, and Friendship. There's a quote at the beginning, the shrew totalitarian mentality knows well the powers of intimate kinship and religious devotion for keeping alive in a population values and incentives which might well in the future serve as the basis of resistance. That's a quote by Robert Nisbet, The Quest for Community. But the concept, it touches on what you were just saying. In culture and society in America, you have family, faith, and friendship. And those things, those are places where you have more trust, more communication, more openness, and, and then you can pass along your values and share them and talk about them openly. And that is why 
why this, uh, back to our point a few minutes ago, that is why this government effort to get involved in helping and coordinating our friendships and creating monitoring systems for your friendships and communications is so, uh, is so evil and lethal and, and, and just cannot be tolerated because this is the last sphere sphere where people can share what they really think. It's, it's a brilliant chapter. So on your point, you had that you, uh, the, this, this is a conclusion chapter, a wrench in the machinery of loneliness. You talked about the one point you just made, you just have to hang on to free speech, keep talking. The more they say no, you say yes, we keep hanging on to free speech. But you also suggested, and you pointed out the history, how mob rule has actually grown uh, notably, um, you know, kind of over time you've been watching things, and that doesn't seem quite right. But you got around to the idea of having a propaganda awareness book club. I yeah. swear, I'm doing it. Just talk briefly what that is. Brilliant idea. Go ahead and do it. Oh, sure. Yes, I, I actually am in the process of, uh, you know, getting this whole thing together, uh, you know, with the website uh, and everything. I have very extensive bibliography that is multimedia. It does not just include books, but and articles and, um, you know, fiction and nonfiction, but it also includes uh, movies and documentaries and all kinds of uh, media in which we can see the connection. And the idea behind this is to you know, have discussion groups where we become so much more keenly aware of how these dynamics work on us, within us, and on society as a whole, and to talk about these things and to talk about how important these relationships are that we have of trust and you know, what happens in uh, totalitarian societies where the trust is broken or attacked so that you know you have families against families and all that. But anyway, all of these things, um, I think it's just really important to discuss. And that's why I came up with this idea of actually have friends who you know really prompted me to do it. This idea of a, a propaganda awareness book club or a weaponization of loneliness book club, where we really delve into the thesis and understanding how these things work so that we can spot it everywhere you know wherever we see it whether it's a toxic boss or you know or just like in a, you know somebody uh acting up in a you know in a store or wherever we are in life or a neighbor uh who uh maybe you know believes exactly as we do but we don't even know it because we're too scared to talk to each other and the idea is to kind of break out of that and and um you know while we still can and, and, and develop these bonds through the, you know, the book clubs would be, uh, I'm thinking about calling a book a movie club, you know, but book club would, would be just a, a, a way to develop more in the sense of community at the same time as, uh, as we do an understanding of this, these dynamics. Absolutely love it. Uh, I know we're about out of time. I just want to mention Hillary Clinton stole your idea. I'm just oh. saying, Hillary, I, I read all those things too. Hillary Clinton actually had the audacity, which is a word I frequently use in, in the same sentence with Hillary Clinton, but she had the audacity to use this expression, this title of this book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. She used it in a caption in a lengthy article on the, in the Atlantic. I could not bring myself to print it out because I can't, I can't stand it, but I did read your summary. And the concept, and just to get around to, to be this self-awareness or this heightened awareness and alertness in our own thinking. Hillary Clinton tried to seize on this idea, which is, which is conduct mostly occur that occurs on the left. She's trying to use this to claim sh she and her ilk as the savior, say, well, we are the ones that stop this. And all this is happening because of, of what, you know, the other side, the more conservative side is doing. I mean, it's just, it, it is, duplicitous beyond words, but it's also it's a little bit of a compliment to you. I guess a last shot, comment on what Hillary had to say about your idea. Wow, yeah, when I first saw that, uh, that's the first time I ever saw uh, my title, The Weaponization of Loneliness, used not in relation to my book. And I saw that as the title of her Atlantic article, very lengthy article that brings up uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy's um, advisory uh and of course you know she basically pats herself on the back for you know uh, writing it takes a village 25 years before but the whole point of that essay uh, was really it was just an enemies list 
it was not anything that I describe as a process. I mean, in my book, I have a thesis and I talk about the process of the weaponization of loneliness. She slapped that title on her Atlantic piece in order to claim that everything alt-right or right-wing or, you know, she, she just listed, like named Rush Limbaugh, Newt Gingrich, Steve Bannon. I mean, she went down this list, there's dozens of uh, you know, smear words and slogans and, you know, that are used and just basically out of the left-wing bag of tricks to, to try to claim that our, our epidemic of loneliness that has been going on for decades, really, in this country uh, is, is due to, uh, quote, right-wing forces. Uh, and so the idea, I think, is also to kind of flip this whole narrative, I think, you know, that, that I promote, this idea uh, that really goes very deep into the human psyche about our fears of isolation and how they can be manipulated and to claim that, oh, well, we have nothing to do with it, you know? I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it was fascinating and, and creepy at the same time to, to read through that, uh, that screed that that she published in the atlantic audacious screed i'm going to put that's about what it was yes okay so uh first i'm so glad you're available to join the show today again for our listeners it's stella morabito's book it's called the weaponization of loneliness and it's a great subtitle how tyrants stoke our fear of isolation to silence divide and conquer it's a full of brilliant insights. It's actually a great Christmas gift for all your grown children and everybody else while you're thinking about it. It's a really, really good book to, I mean, it, it just reintroduces the notion for the individual. You have to realize why things are happening, see the pattern and recognize it, and then you won't fall for it. So, Sol Marbido, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, and thank you so much, Debbie, for having me to have you. Just just wonderful. Thank you so much for their great, great book. Okay, friends, I'll try it. One more quick topic, um, and that is, um, I, I do this because I'm a little bit excited. It seems like um, there are so many times where I'm telling you how, uh, you know, leftism seems to be rising up and, and you know, seems to be winning the day in some um, circumstances. And what we were just talking about, actually, was Stella Morabito, who's just a brilliant writer, author, just, just wonderful. Um, you know, she's talking about how much human psychology plays into our politics and how, you know, when, when someone in government can be, can recognize, oh, I can manipulate the people into seeing, uh, you know, um, a lunatic ideal like transgenderism as a real thing and as actually something that, that we immediately cultivate through psychological manipulation cultivate a society into cheering for it and we work people into hysterical frenzies over any perceived you know stepping on my toe you said the wrong pronoun on my day is ruined i need counseling i mean this is psychological manipulation of the american people just on that issue along with dozens and dozens and dozens of other issues part of the big manipulation the left engages in all the time is trying to convince people not just americans but this is what leftists, Marxists, socialists, communists do. They use language to dupe you into thinking that their tyranny they're about to impose on you is actually something you really, really want. You just can hardly wait to have someone control your social life and, and who your friends are and whether your friends pass their DEI standards. In the case of the example that Stella Morabito gave us about this idea, the government's going to begin monitoring your social relationships for crying out loud. But the point is, the left is always selling lies. They're selling lies about human nature. They're selling lies about the utopia they could create. If only you give them all your power, all your money, all your freedom, you shut up when you're told to shut up, you don't speak about this, you don't do this, you don't believe this, the left is always selling the idea. If you just believe what they're telling you to believe and shut up about everything else in your life, they can make utopia for you. And every, it seems that like we go through cycles in world history over and over and over, recognizing whatever label they put on it, leftism, progressivism, Marxism, socialism, communism, they're all just evil-isms 
designed to take away and crush your individual spirit, your, your, the inherent human desire for freedom, for freedom to live your life as you choose, for freedom to make the associations you want to make, to believe as you believe. This is, this is baked into the DNA, baked into the package of being human. People love freedom. They want to have, they don't want to be controlled. The left's trying to sell the idea all the time, just give us all of your freedom. Give it all away, this baked into your identity. Give it all to us and we'll make utopia. And so we have these cycles over and over. The people of various countries, including America, have to learn the lesson. Oh, as it turns out, leftism is always and forever about tyranny. It doesn't matter what they sell, what they're claiming will happen. It's always about tyranny. It's always about creating misery. It always leads to totalitarianism. That's what leftism is. It's what today's Democrat Party in America is today. It always leads to tyranny and totalitarianism. And we learn this lesson and then people say, oh my gosh, they, they voted out again. Well, a little bit of good news around the world. Um, there are people waking up around the world again, and I hate to think we have to go through, I don't know how many cycles, but at least there are some people waking up in the world to again reject leftism, which we must do in this country, in this next election in 2024. But quick stories around the globe. In the country of Ecuador, they have had a battle royale in Ecuador over electing their next leader. And so they elected, this time they have elected a 35-year-old outsider, a, an actual like freedom lover, a not socialist. Daniel Naboa, N-O-B-O-A, apologize, apologies if that's not the right pronunciation of his name. Daniel N-O-B-O-A, Daniel Naboa, been elected president of Ecuador, he's 35 years old, and he went through a battle in a primary where he shocked everyone by coming in second place, um, in, a, in a race in August, and now he's been elected um, with 94% of the vote counted, received 52.3% of the vote uh, compared to the communist running against him. Now, he wouldn't say he's a communist. He's probably got some other, he's a, he's a socialist. Same darn thing, you know, same side of the aisle, different pew. He's a leftist. Okay, the guy he defeated was Luisa Gonzalez. But the reason I'm telling you this is People see, they have to seem to need to experience firsthand the misery, the deprivation, the, the um, just, 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 just unhappiness in life, not just physical unhappiness, but the, they always have shortages, they always have poverty, they always have misery, they always lose their rights, they always lose their freedoms, and then people say, oh, I, I voted with the socialists and I thought they're gonna make utopia, but turns out they can't do it, and they go back and vote for freedom. I wish we could just learn the lesson and stop ever again voting for these leftist utopian communists. In any case, in Ecuador, they did uh, elect a guy, 35 years old, going to be taking over uh, from a, a leftist. Uh, second thing is, um, story along this line was in both um, Australia and New Zealand, uh, they had recent elections with the same theme. People are sick of Marxism, socialism, communism. They're sick of it. They want to be rid of it. So, and all the, the ways in which those ideas are sold. In Australia, they had a ballot, uh, a constitutional amendment. They're going to add to the Constitution indigenous voice to parliament, a proposal called the indigenous voice to parliament. They're basically going to create a commission of indigenous people in Australia to give them special powers and rights to go to the government, a constitutionally protected role to go to the government on behalf of indigenous Australians to advise parliament to basically pay, they're going to stick identity politics, in, in this case in the form of indigenous Australian people, try to write it into the constitution of the country of Australia, give them elevated role because of their ethnicity. And so the people voted it down almost two to one, almost two thirds of the vote. People said no, the basic point issued by Australia's opposition party against this, they said this is an amendment aimed to divide Australians based on their heritage or at the time which they came to the country. It, the process should have been designed to unite Australians, not to divide us. They recognize identity politics as just another tool in the hands of the leftists to take away power. Similarly, in New Zealand, they had another election, um, and the great thing in New Zealand, you might remember, the woman we talked about before, but now former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was still kind of the behind-the-scenes guru leader of the leftist party in New Zealand, and the voters voted instead. They paved the way for Christopher Luxon, 
head of the Conservative National Party to take over as Prime Minister. Again, we go through all these iterations of foolish leftism, and then they realize how miserable it is. In the case of uh, New Zealand, they realize that, that leftists are inherently, they can't help themselves. They are inherently, inherently driven to totalitarian control, to tyranny. They, that's what they live for. And so they discovered in New Zealand, they actually didn't like it very much how she treated them during COVID, um, this Jacinda Ardern. And so they voted the Liberal Party out, conservatives back in. America needs to learn this lesson. I will say in America, you know, we have an administration in Washington, to, in, um, now uh, he who occupies the White House, which he, he was not elected. He did not win the election in 2020. We had election fraud. And so the election was stolen, but even though it was stolen and the left is trying very hard to convince America, everything's fine. Isn't it great? Don't you love life under the left? Americans cannot wait to get to the ballot box and get rid of these people in Washington. I want to urge you before I get to reading you my uh, why it matters to you for today to think about the lessons. Oh, and by the way, one more story. There was uh, in, in um, Louisiana, even here in the United States of America, Louisiana, how the Attorney General Jeff Landry was uh, elected governor. They've now got a new governor there, again returning power to the Republicans because everybody has to once in a while go through the misery of the Democrats, Marxists, socialists, communists, whatever you want to call them, progressives, and realize all they do is make life miserable for everyone. That's all they ever do. So in Louisiana, uh, Jeff Landry voted in as governor, uh, backed by President Trump. I want to say to you, I'd love to break that cycle in America. I'd love to have a stop having to revert to, you know, four years of utter misery under Biden and the leftists or any other, or, and Obama, who was consciously trying to move this country into socialism and eventually communism. Let's just wise up and vote them all out in such record numbers that we can restore our country, which leads me to the fact of the 2024 elections this year. Uh, we have to decide, I mean, next year, November next year, we have to decide as the people who actually love freedom in this country, we've got to decide we are going to flood the precincts, flood your voting locations on election day, not early, on election day, flood them and show up and vote Republican, vote every single one of these crazy leftists out of our government and take America back. That's got to be our agenda. Last point before I turn to why it matters to you, our Thursday show this week, we have Ann Vandersteel in studio. If you do not know Ann Vandersteel, you are missing out. She is one uh, amazing uh, patriot speaker, fighter, uh, flies around uh, to the border. She's done amazing uh, border reporting uh, from the helicopter, taking video down to Panama. She's been working with Michael Yan. I mean, she's on, on the job, on the border situation, not just reporting, but showing up, not just sitting in her lovely studio talking, but reporting all over the world. So Ann Vandersteel on Thursday, don't miss the show. <gasps> okay, so I do this show, America Can We Talk, to talk truth about America. And today on this show, we talked about the following, and this is why it matters to you. Why there are U.S. supporters of Hamas, of Hamas brutality. NBC News reported on Hamas's documents outlining Israel invasion plans. Explicit targeting of schools, kibbutz, community centers. Maximizing brutality, barbarity, terror. IDF reports 297 bodies remain unidentifiable. Don't let your imagination go too wild, but understand what that means. USA universities and media have for decades trumpeted the moral equivalence of all cultures, which is a completely false construct, obscured the true history of the region and the nature of Islamic hatred of Jews, extolled victimhood and promoted outrage against imagined oppressors. Result, utterly ignorant, naive, and foolish people rally in the USA in support of a civilizational suicide represented by the embrace of Hamas. A bright spot, Ivy League donors are dropping their financial support because of this morally depraved indoctrination and the consequences now evident. It's not about Palestinians versus Israelis. It's about truth versus lie. Leave it up for one second, uh, Mr. Emilio. I didn't get the Ivy League story, but a major, major donor at Harvard University, donor to the Kennedy School of Government, who's Jewish, whose organization um, is Jewish, has pulled massive millions of funding from Harvard because of Harvard's tepid and almost, and he called it stunning, just dismissal of what Hamas has done to Israel. And so he's pulled his money from Harvard. God bless him. Okay, and then we go on with leftists lose elections in Australia, New Zealand, Ecuador, and Louisiana. 
We the people throughout the world are awakening to the deceit and depravity of the ruling class and voting against the leftism that has always leads to tyranny. Where honest elections are possible, the people have stood up, voted, and thrown out leftism and communism in Australia, New Zealand, Ecuador, and the governorship of Louisiana. The yearning for freedom is, na is native to the human heart. No one leaves Florida for Cuba. No one left West Germany for East Germany. No one is migrating across the ocean to try to get in to communist China. Election rigging in the USA has thwarted this yearning of the people for two decades. At least America's best hope is an unimaginably massive turnout on election day 2024 to rectify the steel of 2020. This can be a key turning point in restoring freedom in America and the world. Get engaged to save America. Last thing, I want to urge you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. There you can find all of our blog posts. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. I am restarting the newsletter this week. It's been a little behind for a variety of reasons. We're restarting the newsletter. You can also join America Can We Talk from your $50 a year. I'm, I do this show. I've never been paid a penny for the last 10 years doing this show. Love to have your support. And I also would love to have you read what we have up there. I also, so that is americachemitalk.org. I also want to remind you, I'm running for Republican National Committee woman. And that website is Debbie, which is D-E-B-B-I-E, G, Debbie G, for the digit for, rnc.com. Debbie G, for, there you go, a happy producer put it up. Debbie G for rnc.com. Check out the Facebook page, like our Facebook posts, check it out, our website, read what, why I'm running, what I stand for, and also go to our show website, americacanwetalk.org. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear